Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Paul Manafort. Paul is a political consultant and government affairs professional whose career spanning five decades has been devoted to furthering the interests of the United States on the world stage. As campaign chairman for Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, Paul put into place the structure that delivered the nomination and eventually the general election to Donald J. Trump. Between 1975 and 1980, Paul worked on both the Ford and Reagan campaigns, playing a key role in the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. In 1981, Paul co-founded Black, Manafort, and Stone, establishing the model used in government affairs and public affairs today. And of course, he's with me today to talk about his new book, Political Prisoner, Persecuted, Prosecuted, But Not Silenced. And he'll also have plenty to say on the current conflict in Ukraine. Paul, so glad to have you here. Welcome to the show. Tom, it's good to see you again. You know, since your case began back in the pre-COVID, pre-Ukraine war days, when People were still trying to make the case that Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump had colluded together to steal the 2016 election. And so much has happened since then. But really, you know, your case starts there. And your book is about your trials with the federal government and really the true story behind it. Just to refresh people, you were never charged with anything to do with the 2016 election isn't that right no no there was never because it was all a hoax and you know we know now thanks to the durham investigation that people knew it was a hoax from the beginning i mean my book i sort of try trace things back to uh what now we now know is the beginning which is really 2015 and, and everything involved in my story it sort of connects to what's going on today uh, and the, the personal liberties of the american people uh, being being suspended as well as uh, weaponizing of the of the judicial system, but it took, and, and including Hunter Biden and Joe and, and Joe Biden, in, in, we now know from Durham's investigation 
that in, in early July of 2016, the Clinton campaign authorized, Hillary herself authorized her campaign manager to put out a fake story, which they knew was fake, that the Trump campaign was working with Putin and that Putin wanted Trump to be elected president. We know it was a, a lie because Mooks admitted under oath during one of the trials under, in Durham's case, prosecutions that he, he knew it was a lie, but they were putting it out to what they were concerned about, which was exposure, political exposure on the server issue that Clinton was suffering from. And, and we also know from that same Durham investigation that in what, a few days later, John Brennan, the CIA director, actually briefed Obama on this campaign tactic of Clinton's and that it wasn't untrue. And we know this from Brennan's own notes. So yet, despite all of that, two weeks later, FBI under Peter Strzok started Crossfire Hurricane, which was to investigate contacts and hiring Christopher Steele and Fusion GPS to go to Russia and get proof of what they knew was fake. And it, it, so from the beginning, the, 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 the system was, was rigged. Uh, the, the lies were, were in the, the public domain. And ultimately, the, when they came after me, as a, because I had been involved in Ukraine and electing a president in Ukraine to try and find a nexus to Russia, they totally lied about what all that meant. Because in my case, I was involved in helping uh, Ukraine become a part of Europe. And uh, Putin was 100% against that. So if anything, Putin wouldn't have wanted my involvement and, and, and wouldn't have supported what I was doing for fear that uh, I would have been doing something to help Ukraine become free and part of the European community. It goes on and on and on in the book, and I cross, give you all the details in it. But the story you know, played itself out from there, leading to the special counsel eventually. And I want to get to the uh, Yanukovych was pro-Russian. And that's why they overthrew him to get someone pro-European. Let's get to that in a minute. But I want to stay on your case because they start this investigation, which I think even most liberals admit now is uh, all but the most hardcore have to admit that this was a hoax or at least mistaken. But they don't charge you with anything to do with this Russian collusion. But they do charge you with being a foreign agent and not properly declaring that to the federal government and then dig up some tax issues as well. What do you say to the person who says, okay, maybe that wasn't true, but certainly this guy was dirty. He didn't do the right thing about representing foreign entities and he was acting in a nefarious way. Yeah. Well, in fact, there was no issue with the fair officer, which is the foreign corrupt practices office in the department of justice. I had resolved those issues. There were some questions as to whether I should have filed. I didn't believe I needed to file because I was doing political work overseas, which isn't covered by that act. And I actually had hired lobbyists to deal with, with you, the U.S., and they were they were registered. So the fair unit, when this became public, reached out to me, as they usually do in situations like this, and in a professional way, asked why I didn't file. And we talked about it. And over the course of three months, we agreed that there was, while it was not clear cut, that there was some potential that reasons why I should have filed for a limited period of time in 2013. And if I would just file, then the matter would be closed. And so with my attorneys, I filed. There was, the matter was closed. There was no legal, uh, no criminal actions, no civil actions, no fines, no penalties. The matter was about when Weissman was appointed by Mueller in the Mueller investigation, they needed a hook because they didn't have any, because they already knew everything was fake. And so she, the, he went to the head of the FARA Office of Justice and said, what's the set status with the Manafort case? 
And she said, there is no case. The matter's been resolved and everything's fine. He said, well, I'm throwing out any resolution you reach with them and taking over the matter myself. And then he proceeded to bring criminal charges, which hadn't been done in like the 70 years of the, of the history of the act, bringing criminal charges because the law is so opaque. They would bring civil charges, if anything, but, but Weissman needed a, a scalp. And so he threw out the resolution I reached, created a criminal action out of it, which was not a criminal action at all, and therein started the process. So this was something that you had discussed with the U.S. government, and you'd reached this resolution, and it was Weissman was in a position of authority over the people that, that reached the resolution with you, or was he because he was part well, of the Well, technically, he shouldn't have been. Technically, he shouldn't have been. Now, this was not an independent council. Mueller was a special council. And in the book, I get through, go through the distinctions in it. But an independent council was what investigated the Clintons and, and, and Iran, uh, Iraq Gate. It's where there was a separate authority over and above the Department of Justice created by con congressional law. They, both Democrats and Republicans felt that was too much power in one person. And so they refused to renew the law when it expired several years ago. But so what I was confronted with was a special counsel, which is the equivalent of a U.S. attorney. They don't have the authority to overreach other U.S. attorneys or, or departments. But because of the political nature of this case, Weissman and Mueller went to Rosenstein, got Rosenstein, who was the deputy attorney general, to allow them to throw out a resolution that had been reached with their own DOJ office at FARA and instigate these criminal charges. It was totally political, totally one-sided. There was no question it wasn't a it, it wasn't a legal action that should have been undone. And you know, if they were if you were going to be consistent and if justice truly were blind, Hunter Biden and his laptop was much is all the evidence there of gross violations of the fair act and willful violations of the fair act that they're totally ignored whereas with my case the matters that have been resolved were unresolved in order to make a political prosecution and what was the final conviction for what what exactly did they well get on the it's, books? yeah it gets a little bit complicated in the, i mean i actually had two trials and because once I didn't cave and give them agreed wanted plea bargain. They brought more charges. I had like 32 charges brought against me, including for not for having foreign bank accounts that I didn't declare. By the way, foreign bank accounts that I gave the FBI all the information on four years before on my own initiative, trying to help them in an investigation they were doing for on corruption in Ukraine. And I was somebody that could give them expertise because of my involvement in Ukraine. And I used as examples the very accounts and, and and that Weissman then took off the shelf admitted, said I you know, ignored the fact that I gave them to the FBI in a deposition and said I had hidden them from the US government again matter was there was no there were no criminal actions there was no hiding but Weissman was able to because of his political authority not legal authority you know ignore all of that and create in the court of public opinion a case against me because at the same time as they were doing that, they had put a gag order on me, and they ultimately put me in solitary confinement as well. All the while, they were leaking into the public false information about me on these fake bank accounts and on the tax evasion and on the, the fair connections to Russia. So that by the time I was went to court, I was already convicted in the, in the court of public opinion, and the, and the legal process was not going to be a fair process, not, not in the Washington, D.C. area, 
which I had tried to change the venue for the case and was told by the judge, who was very political, no, there's no reason to change the venue. You can get a fair trial here in D.C. Well, you can't get a trial if you're a Trump supporter in D.C. And I didn't. And so I was convicted on on, a, on those those foreign bank accounts and, and tax evasion charges, which gets complex, although in the book it's clear that what I didn't do. And then the second charges, which included fair, were going to be tried in the D.C. court. And that was, that was, there was no way I was going to get that fair trial, as I said. I mean, we, when we couldn't get the venue changed, I tried to change the, uh, get, we voir dire, instead of normally 40 jurors, 120 juror, potential jurors, we found in our questionnaire of 120 jurors, one possible fair juror, could have been independent enough to make an objective decision based on the facts. So I knew I wasn't going to get a fair trial in the second case. And uh, and it was running out. My properties were being tied up in the second case that I was trying to, some of them belonged to my kids. I wanted to get those out. So I cut a deal with the government, not to cooperate, but to just cut a deal. And I did. And spent 50 hours talking with Weissman in the course of that and didn't ever reach any resolution on anything other than Weissman saying that I was lying because I wouldn't agree to his narrative. And went to jail for effectively two years sentence for seven but to jail for two years let's take a short break for this important message friends if you're enjoying the content here on tom mullen talks freedom you can support my efforts here a couple of ways at tom mullen talks slash support you can join my patreon for as little as three dollars per month and get machine transcripts to every episode and access to my members-only MeWe group, while all access patrons also get my paid subscriber-only articles and videos, or you can become a VIP patron to get all of that, plus access to all of my online courses and a signed copy of the Tom Mullen book of your choice. Now, if you prefer Substack, I also post my paid subscriber-only content there. Find links to all the ways you can support the show at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. That's TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support. Become a supporter of Tom Mullen Talks Freedom today. And now let's get back to our episode. His narrative that you're referring to is that there was something to this Putin connection with the 2016. Well, that's where Mueller, you know, very cleverly blurred lines. No, there was no connection of Putin or Russia to the Trump campaign. There was interference by foreign governments, including Russia, including Ukraine, including China, including Romania, in the political process. Not colluding with Trump or with Clinton, for all I know, but just interfering in the process to create mischief, something that happens all the time. And so they blurred that line and they tried to imply that the interference by Russia was uh, was in concert with the Trump campaign, which they found no evidence of. And there was no evidence of and no one was ever convicted of. But it was that narrative that Weissman was trying to get me to fill in the facts for. He had a very fancy theory on it all, totally made up in his own mind, 
none of which was based on any kind of facts or even tangential facts, but nonetheless was something he wanted me to sort of agree to so that he could then take that into the, into the investigation of, of Trump himself. I want to get to Ukraine, but this whole experience for you, which thankfully ended with a pardon, uh, although it would have been probably more satisfying to get an acquittal, the, how, how did it change the way you look at our justice system in terms of the average person thinking, well, if I haven't done anything wrong, I've got nothing to worry about? Now, even with the tsunami of uh, media against me and the you know, gag order and the solitary confinement, on the charges that were tried, of which there were 18, I was only convicted on eight. And that was after four days of deliberations. And, uh, and it, but it told me, and, and it, it told me how vulnerable uh, the American freedom is to rogue prosecutors and politi politicized Department of Justice. And you know, in the book I wrote for two reasons. One was to get my side of the story out because it never came out during the course of the the time that I was going in, in the center of the role. But also, really, the, the more important reason was to warn the American people that, you know, you feel sorry for me if you want, but that's not the purpose. You're at, you're in the bullseye now. I mean, they're using Trump and me as, as symbols to you to understand that if you don't capitulate, you're at risk. And I finished this book at the end of last year. So I got the full second, first year of the Biden administration in the book. And in it, I talk about the, the threats to, to, to the American people. And I gave examples, you know, because during that first year, you had parents being called domestic terrorists for going to school board meetings and caring about how their kids were taught. You had a, a Department of a Homeland Security trying to set up a disinformation bureau, which would have designated Americans who gave who spoke out publicly in ways that they did, the Department of Homeland Security deemed dangerous to be domestic terrorists. I, and, I, and I warned that they were going to get even deeper into the, into the fabric of our country and coming after anybody who didn't agree with the Biden administration and the woke left. And you see that today, even more so with the 87,000 IRS agents, with the, you know, with the attempt by Biden to, to give this scary speech, one of the scariest speeches I've ever seen an American president give in Philadelphia, calling anybody who disagrees with them fascist and, and warning that the, that domestic terrorism is on the rise because, and defining that as anybody who disagrees with their idea of democracy and, and their view of what's real and not. And so that's the, the threat that the American people are, are, are witnessing today. And that's the threat that American people need to understand from my book. They need to be vigilant to to go, protect themselves from. I think this election is a, is the beginning of what I hope to be a taking back of the country. But uh, but it, the system when it's set up the way it is now, politicized, where you, the FBI is politicized, the Justice Department is politicized, you know, any uh, censorship of freedom of speech, it's a very dangerous time. And, and, and American people are very much at risk and really need to not just watch it and feel sorry for what happened to me, but, but come forward and, and protect themselves. As a libertarian watching your case back then in 2018 and 19, you know, I, the first thing I thought of was the way the justice department will railroad some poor schmuck on a drug charge and charge him with 40 things and get him on something. And put them away for 10 or 12 years for, for not very much. And that's kind of how I was 
viewing what they were doing to you for political reasons. But as you say now, even if you're not sympathetic to the people who maybe railroaded on a nonviolent drug charge, it's you. If you're one half of the country who has some sympathy for either Donald Trump or even if you don't like Trump and you like just you're a conservative, you can consider this Make America Great Again platform to be a good one. You're in the crosshairs, and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say this could happen to you. No, it's not an. It, it is happening to them. It's not an exaggeration at all. And and they, the left, the woke left, is defining the territory where if you disagree with them, you are terrorist. And that's they're using language to, clearly insurrectionism, terrorism, in order to trigger uh, elements of our, our laws that reduce your freedoms in defending yourself. I mean, you know, January 6th, look, I, you know, everybody's got their own opinion on it. There was some violence that was committed. Those people should be punished. There are a lot of people who are there expressing their right to freedom of speech. They're in jail right now. They've been in jail for over 300 days, you know, with no access to attorneys in solitary confinement, as I understand, because they showed up at the Capitol to protest their view of an election. And, you know, and the people who charge these, these, American citizens of being terrorists are the very and threats to democracy for not recognizing the election of 2020 are the very people who in 2016 refused to recognize Donald Trump was elected president and denied his presidency legitimacy throughout the whole term of it. Yet they now are making the American people into terrorists for the same reaction to an election that they had in 2016. That's not acceptable. But, and that's a very dangerous precedent. And the more they get away with, the more they're going to push off, uh, on the left for more, for more activity. So that's why it's really important. And that's the real message of my book for the American people to mobilize and take back their country. Now, a lot of the, um, a lot of the activity that they brought up and some of the things you've talked about here, as far as the bank accounts and your work in Ukraine, you did a lot of work with Viktor Yanukovych. And the story we have, even for people who recognize the fact that the U.S. government was way too involved in Yanukovych's departure from office, I think except the narrative that he was sympathetic to Russia and he wanted to bring Ukraine closer to Russia and was resistant to it becoming more connected to Europe economically and otherwise. What do you have to say about that? Well, it's 100% false. I mean, in the book, I go through the details. Yanukovych was elected president in 2010 on the, on the platform of bringing Ukraine into Europe and then spent the next three and a half years of his presidency changing the laws of Ukraine, the, the, the economic laws, the, the legal system, the regulatory system, to comport with the requirements of the European Union, working very closely, by the way, with the European Commission. I know that because I was one of the point guys going back and forth between Kiev and Brussels. And all of that's public information. There's no secret here. And what had it all come apart was one day, the, near the end, when Yanukovych was ready to sign the, the association agreement, which was the trade agreement that was the first step in Ukraine becoming part of Europe, they, Putin finally understood that Yanukovych was serious and that he was moving forward. And he threatened publicly, again, public information, threatened that if Yanukovych signed the trade association agreement in Vilnius uh, in 2013, that 14, that uh, he would shut down immediately all trade between Russia and Ukraine, 
which was at that point 70% of the trade of Ukraine you know, in, in, in foreign commerce. And of the 30% of which chunk of it was Europe, that was going to be affected by this trade agreement in a way that was going to favor the European countries for the first couple of years to the detriment of the Ukrainian companies, because part of the requirement was for Ukraine to take down its protectionist barriers and allow free entry. of. So Yanukovych didn't say no to Europe. He said to Europe, look, I, I need a bridge loan here. With a bridge loan, I will sign the agreement in advance. And at that time, it was estimated to be about $3 billion, which is a lot of money. And the Europeans said no. And Yanukovych said, I can't sign the agreement without the bridge and shut down or, and have my country shut down. But he didn't say he wouldn't sign it. And when the Europeans said, no, we're not going to give you the, uh, the bridge loan, he said, then I got to work this out. That's what he, not, I'm not going to sign, not I'm going to Russia. I have to work out the problem. All public information. All of it ignored by the media because none of that purported to, to, to fill the what image they needed of Yanukovych being pro-Russian, me being Yanukovych's campaign guy, consultant, and therefore me having Yanukovych as the backdoor of Putin. That was the Weissman theory. He had to keep that and facts be damned. So I just want to make sure I heard you right. You said $3 billion was the, the loan he was looking for. So, I mean, not to make light of it, but this, this is, you know, the average bailout today. Is, is... Nothing, it's, not, it's nothing compared to what has been the cost to Ukraine, because as a result of that, Ukraine, uh, Putin invaded Ukraine, took over Crimea, destabilized Eastern Ukraine. And then when Biden became president and the same people under Obama came into the Biden administration, he then invaded Ukraine looking for the rest of it. What he didn't understand is something that I understood because I'd done all the work in Ukraine for 10 years. I understood the fabric of the Amer of Ukrainian people very well from the polling I had done and the in-depth research I had done. Ukraine is two countries. It's, it's the eastern part is Russian ethnic. The western part is sort of European ethnic, Polish, Hungarian. And in the conventional wisdom of the mainstream media was, well, eastern Ukraine is pro-Russia. And that's where Yanukovych was from. But while it's Russian ethnic, Eastern Ukrainians wanted to protect the Russian Orthodox religion, which was important, and that was one of the big issues between the East and the West in the country. They wanted to protect their Russian culture. They wanted to protect their Russian language. But they didn't want to be a part of Russia because they understood freedom in Russia is different from freedom in Ukraine. And in none of my polls did ever the, in the Eastern Ukraine, more than 5% ever of Russian ethnic Ukrainians ever say they wanted to be part of Russia. Putin didn't understand that. And that was the shock he got when he invaded last last year or this year uh, uh, in, in trying to take over Russia and found the resistance to be so stiff that he couldn't accomplish his military objective. I understood that. And, you, and Van Yanukovych understood that. Yanukovych understood that the reason Ukraine needed to be part of Europe is to unleash the power of Ukraine that could never, that was always be a captive uh, of, an, of a autocratic Russia if they were part of the Russian, greater Russia, as opposed to part of the European community. Most of everything I've told you is public information, but it was all ignored so, so that Weissman's narrative, the Russian hoax narrative, or collusion narrative, could have some, some air. But even then, with all the investigations that were done by the Senate Intel Committee, the House Intel Committee, the Mueller investigation, none of them could find an iota of evidence of collusion 
because none existed. So they had to deal with exaggerations of misinformation and putting and gagging me and putting me in solitary confinement. So they get rid of Yanukovych and was it Petrushenko next? Poroshenko. Poroshenko, I'm sorry. And does he do what the Europeans wanted without the bridge loan or? No, no, it took a while. What, what happened was, what happened was when he was, he became president, the restrictions that the Europeans were putting on the Ukrainians sort of evaporated. And, and they made, they sort of opened all the doors for ease of entry into the, into the trade agreement. And, and because most of the things that were hard that had to be done, Yanukovych had negotiated and, and agreed to. So the changes had actually already occurred. And, and so what happened when, when Poroshenko became the president and he was sort of the, the candidate of the West, of, of Europe and the United States, it was as if there was this major change in Ukraine's political leadership, when in fact there was no change. Poroshenko was actually a founding member of Yanukovych, but, but he was put in a different light. And he was, he was given leeway that they wouldn't give Yanukovych. And, and, when, and the way Putin responded to that was to invade Crimea, to take over eastern Ukraine, destabilize eastern Ukraine. So there was a cost to this country. But the Europeans sided with, with Poroshenko in a way they wouldn't side with Yanukovych to help against Russia. Now, in the end of the day, they didn't help Ukraine get back any of the, the territory. They didn't give any weapons to Ukraine to defend themselves. It wasn't until Trump became president that the lethal weapons that Ukraine needed to defend themselves against Russia were, were finally given to the Ukrainians. And it was, by the way, those weapons that allowed them when Russia invaded this year to defend themselves against that Russian invasion. It wasn't because of anything Biden was doing. I mean, Biden is now just talking about getting his first wave of of military weaponry into Ukraine. But the, the, the battle was fought with, with the support that Trump gave the Ukrainian government and people, and, the, and because of the resistance of the Ukrainian people to losing their freedom to a Russian oligarch. I think 2014 is central to everything that's going on in Ukraine. And I guess the other question on my mind is, if Yanukovych was not pro-Russian or, or more open to having a closer relationship with Russia, then why did those Russian-speaking provinces rebel once he was removed? They didn't rebel. The rebellion that happened in eastern Ukraine when Yanukovych was uh, was removed, that was Russian-inspired, if, if that's what you're talking about. There was no groundswell. to When Yanukovych left the country, which he shouldn't have done, I was opposed to him doing it. I told him, if you leave, you are going to lose your legacy. But part of one of the one of the bad parts of Ukraine that still exists is the corruption in that country. And 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 you know, we now know things that I didn't know back then about the level of corruption. But the level of corruption was no different under Poroshenko than it was under Yanukovych. It's just Poroshenko was viewed as the Western guy, and Yanukovych wasn't their guy. And, and he wasn't their guy because he didn't come from the Western Ukraine. There was no other reason. It's 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 all personality politics. It's geographic considerations. Eastern Ukraine was didn't have the support of of the Europeans the way Western Ukrainians did because they had the Russian heritage, and the and the West resisted it for no reason. They shouldn't have resisted it. I mean, my my feeling in the very beginning and the reason I worked for Yanukovych was because I always believed that. Yanukovych could bring Ukraine into Europe because he was from Eastern Ukraine. 
Whereas if somebody from Western Ukraine tried to do it, they wouldn't have been able, they wouldn't have been able to do it because the price would have been too great and would have severed the, the country. The East trusted Yanukovych, the eastern part of Ukraine. And so when he was protecting their interest in the process of signing the agreements and changing the laws, they felt comfortable. And the only reason there wasn't a rebellion after he left was because the safety net that he put in place remained in place. And so to the eastern Ukrainian provinces, they they were looking still they wanted to be they wanted to be part of Europe not part of Ukraine of, of, of Yanukovych I mean, Yanukovych was the vehicle he wasn't the he wasn't the goal. and and so the Poroshenko correctly continued to move Yanukovych, Ukraine in that direction on the foundation that Yanukovych put in place and that's why there wasn't a rebellion in the in the, in the eastern part of the country against the Poroshenko presidency so had they just left things alone probably not much would have changed is what you're saying as far as Yanukovych is concerned the policy just moved forward the way it was while he was still president that's kind of shocking the reality is that for three billion dollars which is not even probably a month's worth of, of, of money being spent in Ukraine today in the war for three billion dollars Ukraine would be whole meaning Crimea and eastern Ukraine would still be part of Ukraine and it would be in Europe uh, and we wouldn't have had this bloody war. And so all of the that conflict, all, all of the severing of parts of Ukraine uh, by, by Russian military invasions, none of, uh, none of that had to happen. So it, honestly, it's not wouldn't be the same. It, Ukraine is worse off today because Yanukovych was undermined and the West didn't support what he needed at a time that he was giving them the country. Wow. Well, I think most people are going to find that everything you've said here is shocking because they've been told so many things that are the opposite of that. Based on your expertise, your work in the country, how do we get out of this? How does this get resolved? Can it be resolved? Well, I've been saying for the last six, seven months that my fear is that Ukraine is going to win the war and lose the peace. Uh, and what I mean by that is what you're seeing happening today they're recapturing parts of their territory now. They, they, they are consolidating and expanding their control of their own country. The Russians are, are fragmented. They're in disarray, notwithstanding Putin's attempts to try and get a, a, a new militia of, of, of recruits. He's having trouble doing it. So it's, it's falling. Putin's strategy is falling apart. So what's going to happen as we get close to the winter? is he's going to use the gas gas lever and he's going to say that he wants to have a sit down to negotiate out the terms of the of a peace and the terms of the peace are going to say that he legally consolidates Crimea as part of Ukraine which it still isn't that this this new effort he's making in eastern Ukraine to have them break away from Ukraine and be independent provinces, and this referendum that he's talking, that he just had, that that, that will be acknowledged and consolidated, and they'll become part of they'll petition to become part of Russia and be allowed to do that. So that he, what he couldn't gain on the battle, he he uses the peace process to accept to consolidate. And my fear is that the West is going to be willing to do, give that up in order to be warm this winter, and and that will leave the Ukrainian people isolated and and in a very bad place and more vulnerable 
for Putin's next foray into Ukraine, which would be sometime in the near future, and and no, with no hope. That's my fear. So what has to happen is the, the Europeans and the Americans have got to say, hey, we're not going to let Ukraine be given away on the peace table when uh, after the failures by Putin on the, military, the battlefield. Got to say no. And, and they've got to be firm. And they've, and they've got to keep the pressure inside Russia on, on, the, on Putin. Because Russia's crumbling right now inside. We're not seeing what's really happening. But Putin's got problems right now. I mean, the, his, the, a lot of the people in the country, the, Amer the Russian people, are starting to see what really was going on. And they don't agree with it. They don't understand uh, why they needed to invade Ukraine. And so the more difficulty and pressure we put in Russia on, on the government, the more that's going to undermine Putin and force him to have to not even force a, a peace negotiation. The other thing we've got to do, and we're not doing it, is we are ceding Russia, I mean, China and India, to Russia right now. We're just letting them, have, you know, instead of, of trying to work with China and India to isolate Russia, we're letting Russia do their own gas deals, their energy deals with those countries. We should be working those back channels to create further pressure on Russia. It's not happening. And and so it's you see the failure of Biden's policy of, 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 of sort of isolating and criticizing our enemies, our friends in the Gulf, like Saudi Arabia and the UAE. And, and, and because of certain pressures in, the, in Southeast Asia, not trying to work with China to isolate Russia, you see you know, those failures of, of, of legitimate diplomacy working to Putin's benefit. And he's, if he's the only guy aggressively moving chess pieces around on the board, then he's going he's gonna to get away with it. Well, I can't see that anything's going to change during the Biden administration. Do you think the Republicans have a chance in 2024? And are you thinking it's going to be Trump or do you see somebody else on the horizon? Well, I think we first have to take take charge in 2022, which I think is going to happen. I think Republicans are going to win major victories all on all levels in the Congress, with governors, with state legislatures. With with as we district attorneys' offices, school boards. I mean, we're focusing on the right things, and and I think that what the red wave is going to cover all of those areas. And then we need to consolidate and expose the corruption in our legal system and our judicial law enforcement system, and show what the Biden administration is doing in politicizing that in preparation for 2024. If we do that then I think we will be in a very strong position in 2024. If Trump runs, which I think Biden is making it hard for Trump not to run, if he runs, I think he'll win. If he doesn't run, I think Republicans will still win as long as they keep the pressure on draining the swamp. If they try and you know blur those lines and get away from the agenda, the MAGA agenda, which is, is a freedom agenda. It's I mean, Biden has tried to make it into a fascist agenda. It's a freedom agenda. What is a MAGA agenda? Safe borders, you know, safe streets, you know, energy independence, economic freedom for all people. I mean, that's the MAGA agenda. And that's where Trump was successful. That's where Biden has failed. If we focus on those issues and make the comparison of a Trump president and a Biden president, the case then makes itself. And we will in the White House. And then we finish the revolution. I myself wasn't 
completely on board with all of Trump's positions. I especially didn't like the trade positions that he took. But the one thing that I really did like was he seemed to have an aversion to unnecessary war and an inclination to try and even talk to the people that are considered adversaries. Do you see somebody like a DeSantis having those instincts? Because I wonder if he's a little bit more establishment or not. Well, I mean, the key is, the, the reason Trump was comfortable about that was he believes in personal diplomacy. He believes, was confident in his ability to persuade, negatively or positively, so that Kim Jong-un would understand, you know, I'll be your friend, you don't have to worry about me, but I'll be your enemy too. And you will have to worry about me if you do violate these, these particular precepts. That's the personality that the president has to have, whoever is going to be president. And if, if it's going to be a presidency that's going to look towards Foggy Bottom, the State Department setting our diplomatic policies, then no, it's, we're not going to have the successes that Trump was beginning to make. Because it's the, that's the very, those are the very policies that put America in harm's way and into the wars that you're talking about. And that's what, they understand that in Foggy Bottom. The Swamp understands that. That's why they have doubled down on trying to go after Trump now rather than risk him once again ending up in the Oval Office. It's so, do I think Republican, they're Republican candidates, DeSantos being one, who have that capability? Yes. But they've got to not be cowered by what will be the West, the mainstream media's response, whoever's the Republican nominee, to try and define Republicans as the, the fascists or the enemies of freedom, and will, you know, will ferment the civil war that they said was only because of Trump. It wasn't only because of Trump. It was fermented by the, the woke left. And if it wasn't Trump, it would have been whoever it was that they would have gone after. And so if Trump's not the president, if, uh, whoever it is, if it's a Republican, is going to be treated the same way Trump was. And that's what Republicans have to understand, is this is a strategy of it's the tactics that Lenin talked about. And, uh, and, it's, and our response is, can't be to try and embrace it and persuade it. It's got to be to beat it down and defeat it. Well, that's all fascinating, Paula. We've only scratched the surface of your great book here. So I'm going to link to that on the show notes page. And I hope you'll have time to come back sometime because I got a hundred more questions for you. Where else can people go to find any of your writing or, or other things, Paul Manafort, these days? Well, I mean, this is the first book I wrote. I'm thinking of doing one or two more, but that's, that's it right now. So they can start with that book and they can get that on Amazon or Barnes and Nobles or or even Simon Schuster and in bookstores. And, uh, and, and yes, I'd love to come back and talk to you again on more, this and other topics as well, Tom. Sounds great. Thanks very much for spending this time today. We'll talk to you soon. All right, Tom. Thank you. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. Just a few reminders to stop by TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash support and check out all the ways that you can support my efforts here including joining my Patreon or my Substack. And if you haven't already, make sure that you go to itsthefedstupid.com to download a copy of my free ebook, It's the Fed Stupid. And as always, if you like the music you've heard here on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.